The following is a presentation of GalacticNetcasts.com. Welcome to the first gathering of the Adventure Party on this, the 14th of March. I am your party leader, Brad Ludwig, and we're going to ask you that you uh, peace tie your swords, holster your blasters, and stop using your psychic powers to cheat at cards while you're gathered at the meeting table. Uh, today marks the, uh, this is our inaugural episode. And uh, we're going to be doing something very unusual, and uh, that is uh, I'm going to be introducing you to uh, my second-in-command here at the Adventure Party, but he's also going to be our first guest. And I wanted you to get to know Glenn uh, Bittner, sorry, uh, as well as I, yeah, I know you so, so well because I've mispronounced your last name yet again. God, I just, you're all, you've always been Glenn or Biff to me. Uh, Now I've known Glenn for close to two decades, um, but because we are on, on that level where we just use first names that I just totally, totally whiffed on the last name there. So things that you should know about Glenn and the reason why he's uh, here and why I, I chose him to uh, be a part of the adventure party. Uh, Glenn is a very creative individual. Uh, he's a film writer, director, and producer, and he's made three horror short films uh, the, by the names of Hell, Prey, and Handy. Uh, he's also the host of the YouTube show B-Movie Bunker, where he is a movie critic and you have quite the illustrious collection on your YouTube channel, sir. How many videos do you have right now? Oh, boy. It's around 260, I think, reviews. Wow. That's that's a lot. And you've been doing that for how long? Uh, about three and, a half, three and a half years, I think. That's that's a prolific collection, my friend. I, uh, I don't use my time wisely, so I watch a lot of movies. <laughs> There's no shame in that, sir. There's no shame in that. So, yeah, three and a half years worth of material that you can uh, check out if you uh, look up uh, Naked Hobo Productions and the B-Movie Bunker on YouTube. Uh, he's also an independent game maker, and that's one of the big things that I wanted to to talk with uh, Glenn about in our uh, inaugural meeting here. The interesting thing is by day, with, with what other time he has available, uh, in, in his uh, in his day. He's the manager of a game store in Milwaukee, Wisconsin called the Board Game Barrister. And you are a manager there, if I'm correct. I am. Excellent. Management is awesome, isn't it? Uh, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and Glenn has uh, done something very interesting, and uh, I, I was very glad to have uh, helped back this particular uh, venture of Glenn's. He released a RPG called Mist Runner. The interesting thing about Mist Runner is it's a fantasy 
slash steampunk styled RPG. I think that's the best way to describe it. Is would that be fair? Pretty pretty much. I think way back in the day, our um, our mutual friend Jeff uh, kind of described it as a Mist of Avalon meets Road Warrior meets Shadowrun <laughs> meets Planescape. Okay, so. nice. Now the the sad thing is I. <sighs> And we'll we'll get to this in a moment. I have not had an opportunity to play or or run Mist Runner, even though uh, I, I I did purchase a, and get, receive a copy a, a while ago. I've definitely looked through it, but I, I lack the courage and wherewithal to actually to actually run a game. So I have not done that yet. Uh, the other thing that Glenn is doing now is he's working on a card game called Apocalypse How, which you've been play testing now. For how long? Probably about two years. Two years. And uh, where Again, would you? I don't use my time wisely. Well, I, you know, <laughs> to, but but you know, the really great games, I think, take. Oh, and and you have a day job for God's sakes. I mean, yeah, you to, yeah. You got to feed yourself and pay the bills, and and in your free time, do do the things that you love most, and that's that's create. So uh, there's absolutely zero shame in that. Two years. Where do you feel you are at? would you say um i would say as far as actual play goes the game is 99 percent done i actually have, the hardest thing i have to do still i think is i actually have to write the actual rules because okay. i can sit there and i can tell you how to play the game i can show you how to play it but i need you to be able to at some point buy this take it home without me coming to your house and knowing how to play it <laughs> so that's that's the hard thing for me and then aside from that the only thing other thing is I have to eventually figure out what we're going to do for artwork and then do all the layout, which means I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do for artwork and then have someone else do it because that's not my strong suit. <laughs> See, it's always good, and that's a rule of management. Hire out and, and get people that can do the job to do it and do it well. So good on you. So I guess we'll get into more specific detail because there are a number of questions that I want to ask you in the, in the whole process of creating and releasing a game. So we'll get to that in a second. So, uh, yeah, I officially I'm going to welcome you to the Adventure Party, Glenn. Um, <laughs> huzzah. What we're going to do next, folks, is we're going to go over some news stories here uh, in the world of gaming, ch chat about some cool things that have gone on here. One thing that's really interested me, and this is a, a, a company called Roll20.net. Uh, have you heard of them, Glenn? I have. Okay. Now, Roll20 has just uh, unveiled a, a new update. And this uh, long-awaited update squashed some bugs. But also, the updates for the desktop application right now uh, submitted the uh, update to the app to the iTunes store. They will be releasing the Android update after the iTunes version is released. But uh, the big question is, what did they add? Now, Roll20 is a virtual environment in which you as a game master or storyteller can upload a map. You can input character sheets. You can have everybody do a virtual D&D session, a virtual Shadowrun session. This has a fog of war function on the map, which is really kind of cool. So everybody gets to see the map unveiled at the same time. Now, they added some things like folders. So they've allowed you as a 
creator and player to organize your stuff for a campaign by folder for you to get easy access to and organize your stuff. Pop out characters and handouts. Looking to make better use of your screen space? You're about to, uh, you're now able to uh, pop out dialogue boxes for characters, uh, including character sheets and handouts. They have 3D dice. So everybody gets the opportunity to see the rolls as they're made, which is always a, a fun bit of, especially when there's that epic fail of, of a one rolled in a Pathfinder campaign. I've seen that far too often in a Monday night campaign that I'm a part of. So they've reworked the rendering for the 3D dice, and it takes up less resources to use, which is excellent if you don't have the best connection in the world. And it tied into their quantum roll system and removed uh, several bugs from, from the old one. They've got role templates. Now, along with community-contributed character sheets, they now have role templates and improved visual results for roles. So character sheet authors have already begun creating role templates for some of the most popular games uh, in Roll20, and mentors will be able to create their own customized result appearances. Uh, text chat changes. Uh, you can now take slash talk to myself to test out commands and add basic formatting, text chat, and more. So if you have a message that you want to share, you know, if you want to share a secret with somebody else in the party or share something that you want to do with the Game Master without anybody else knowing, uh, you can do that with the text chat, which is really kind of cool. And they also offer uh, APIs, which uh, application program interfaces. So basically, if you are a a programmer slash developer, you can create things that will interface with Roll20, which is really kind of a, a cool way to, if you are so inclined to add some cool things to Roll20 that, that, that works for you and your group. And they have a uh, new compendium that launched, at least at the time of uh, the release of this particular news item. And it's uh, they're referring to it as the technical preview and uh, if you check the uh, the show notes that we will include with this the show, you'll be able to see more uh, from uh, the blog at Roll20.net. So being able to play a game virtually, what are your thoughts on that? Did pros and cons? Um, I mean, obviously the con is, is, is I mean, you do miss out on cues you can get sitting around a table with people. You, you can see someone's body language uh, better. Uh, you can hear their voice better. And it's, I think, easier to get distracted when you're playing virtually because you've got your computer, which, of course, has Facebook and Twitter and all these other stuff on it, too, that you can switch between windows on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the pro is, is, I mean, I have no current game group as far as RPGs go because all people I used to play RPGs with have left me. Yeah. They, they have moved away to other pastures. And uh, it's nice to be able to check in with, and play with people that I normally don't get to. The other nice thing is that I have used it, uh, I sorry, I haven't used it myself, but I have friends who have used it in playtesting of some of their RPG mechanics and stuff like that. They've gotten okay. people that they know and they play with uh, virtually. And it's from what I've seen, if I do more RPG stuff, I definitely want to do some of that stuff too because there's people that I would love to get feedback on or feedback from, play directly with them. And I mean, I can't with some of these people. I can't hop a plane and fly to England to work on my next RPG thing because if I could do that, I wouldn't have a day job. <laughs> That's very true. Very true. Well, uh, you've got the next story here, Glenn. Settlers of Catan is turning 20. 20! And every time anything has an anniversary now, I just go, 
holy cow, I'm getting old. But Settlers Crown turning 20, and in celebration of that, they are doing a fifth edition. It's uh, For some people, it's been kind of a long time coming in that it's just clarifying uh, some of the rules. And for those who are worried, uh, you don't get your meatballs in a twist, it's going to be completely backwards compatible with fourth edition. You can have the new fifth edition Catan. They're dropping the Settlers of. It's just going to be Catan. You can get 5th edition Catan and play it with your 4th edition Cities and Knights. You can get 5th edition Seafarers, play it with your 4th edition Settlers of Catan. It's all going to be fine. They're using the same same dies to make all the cuts. The card backs are all going to be the same. It's mostly cosmetic changes. It's uh, They're uh, redoing a bunch of the artwork and clarifying the rules. There, there are some rules in some of the cards, the text some of the cards, that can be misconstrued by people who like to twist the words of rules to their own advantages. <laughs> um, and it also needed rules clarification because Catan, for a long time, it's been one of those games that it's hugely popular. It's a hugely popular game. But for people who are not gamers already, and Catan is one of those games that people kind of get into when they're not already gamers. You know, they play Monopoly and Sorry, and all of a sudden they see, hear about this game Catan. If you don't have someone to show you how to play it, it can be a hard game to learn just reading the rules. Sure. And, and they've, they've cleared some of that stuff up a bit to make it a bit more approachable to the non-Euro-type you know Euro type gamer. So I'm looking forward to it. it. They don't have an exact release date uh, as the last I heard. They keep changing it around a bit, but it's coming this year. The other big changes is they're changing the box. It's uh, just going from a longer, wider box to a taller, narrower box. Because it's a new, new edition, they also get to raise the price. Okay, two things. One, why would they change the shape of the box? What What's up with that? I don't really know why they're doing that. Well, actually, no. I I, I, I do know. I don't know why I'm saying I don't. I, I actually talked to, uh, when I was at Toy Fair, I talked, well, my boss talked and I listened. Uh, one of the reasons is, is that it's for marketing on shelves. It takes up less of a footprint being, I mean, all it really is is it's taking the current box and standing it up and putting the artwork this, that way instead. So it's just turning the box on its side and the side is not becoming the bottom and the bottom and top becoming the sides. <laughs> okay. So it's just, it's just doing that. So you can fit, I guess, more Catan in less space or All less right. linear feet. So, which as someone who runs a store, things that take up less linear feet is good because there's a lot of games that fit on shelves and Catan has a huge footprint when you factor in the base game, and all the expansions then the extension for the base game, and the extension for all the expansions and then all the different Catans, like Star Trek Catan and Egypt Catan and Histories of America Catan and you know, all the different Catans that they throw out there. It's a lot of space. I know I've seen Star Trek. Have they done a Star Wars Catan? Is there, what's the most unusual flavor of Catan that is out there, would you say? Well, I suppose it all depends on, on your point of view. I mean, Star Trek Catan really doesn't play all that different uh, or the base concept of the game isn't all that different. It's just they threw a Star Trek theme on it. So instead of having wood, you now have dilithium. And instead of having, you know, wool, you have oxygen. So the okay. biggest change with that was they added characters. And you get characters that uh, you get a card that gives you special ability. For example, uh, okay. uh, if you have Captain Kirk, he can ignore the, it's not the robber, it's the Cleon, of course. You ah, can ignore yes. a seven. <laughs> So if you're Captain Kirk and you're sitting there with 12 cards and someone rolls a seven, you can be like, yeah, I'm Kirk. I can ignore that. Nice. 
but you can only use the abilities up to two times and you have to get rid of them and draw someone new. So you can't just sit there with you know, oh. some of the best people in the whole game. Sure. So, I mean, Ohura is probably my favorite because she lets you force trade. It's the, I know you have oxygen, so I'm giving you the lithium, you're giving me an oxygen, and you have no say in it. <laughs> Ohura just makes you trade. Nice. So, and they actually released a, a, a set just called the Helpers of Catan for regular Catan. That's basically the same abilities, just, of course, on not Star Trek-themed characters because that would not be... The universes are not analogous. You can't cross over like, you know, willy-nilly like Marvel and DC. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. All right. Very nice. All right, uh, we're going to go to the next item here, and that is uh, Universal Adventures uh, Adventure Module Number 2, Scourge of the Scurvelings. Now, I, I just uh, found out a little bit about Universal Adventures they are they design products so that they can be used in multiple settings so it's not specific to pathfinder it's not specific to any particular game system but it is a kind of an idea starter and you know box text generator and a scenario for you to play through Danger and death stalk the streets of Ravenor. People continue to disappear. Fishing boats have been found drifting unmanned through the morning mists. Their crews never to be seen again. And there are rumors of strange sounds and smells plaguing the nights and bodies drained of blood being found lying in the streets with the coming dawn. Welcome to Universal Adventures Scourge of the Scurvelings. Here's the rest of the write-up on this, which is less uh, flowery here. Discover what lies beyond assault of the underworld as you set off in search of the dangers that plague Ravenor. Uh, Universal Adventures Scourge of the Scurvelings is the second release in a new series of adventure modules from New Realms Publishing. The module includes introductory and setup information, an adventure record with background, start and objective information, nine adventure cards, nine encounter cards, nine event cards, nine search cards. Actually, there are 18 treasure cards and nine shadow hall cards. I didn't see information about shadow hall and what that's all about, but I would like to know more about that. Uh, suitable for use, like I said before, with any fantasy role-playing game, Scourge of the Scurvelings can be played solo or with a group, with or without a GM. The adventure is highly replayable, and compatible with other Universal Adventures cards. In addition, you can combine the cards with other cards from the series or cards from other Universal Adventures products to create your own adventures. The Adventure Module is a new simple way to play fantasy adventures. The organization and presentation of the adventures allows for quick setup, quick play, and gives you the ability to focus on the action and story while leaving you the option to include tactical action and combat if you desire. So that's always one of those things as, and it depends on the group you put together. Either they're going to be role play heavy or they're going to be dice heavy. It's been a long time since I've run something, but trying to feel out the group, it's it, it can be difficult sometimes in trying to find that good balance, but at least having all of these bits and pieces already assembled for you will kind of allow you to add and subtract as, uh, as you see fit. Enter a new and exciting world of adventure full of wonder and surprises. Gather your heroes and prepare to battle the scourge of the scurvelings. And I got this story at rpgnow.com. As a person who loves to game, 
doesn't have a whole lot of time or in my case, I am so nervous about trying to run a game and screwing up the rules <laughs> and getting into the rules lawyer debate with somebody on, you know, why'd you do that when this is that? And then page 25, you know, to have that kind of a setup for you, what, what do you, what are your thoughts on, on pre-gens like this? Um, I think for the right group of people, I think they're great. Um, not everyone... I've always been a, I'm a very free flow GM. I come up with just a very vague, all right, they're going to meet this guy and they're going to have a box. And that's pretty much what I have for my adventure prep. And everything <laughs> else is pretty much, I improv based on what the players do. Sure. I might have some stats of some characters, some NPCs or monsters, but for the most part, I just, I, I, you know, you know, no wonder I'm free balling the whole way. So, um, <laughs> but I know a lot of people can't do that. And not everyone has time, you know, to sit and, and plan out these, you know, great adventures, which the players will just ignore and ruin anyways. It's good to have, I think, some of these things where, especially the fact you can play it solo. I used to, I mean, it, that takes me back to the days of the Return to Brookmere and Revolt of the Dwarves and all the old other uh, choose-your-own-adventure books that they used to put out. Whereas sure. that I, I could scratch that little bit of that, that RPG itch without there being other players around and... I mean, now we have all the thousands and thousands of computer games, but it's just not quite the same, I don't think, as actually just, you know, getting down and, you know, rolling dice and, you know, touching things that aren't a keyboard, a mouse, or a controller. <laughs> sure. Or your neighbor. You know, <laughs> that. Well, if you're having a handsy RPG session, there, there may be something wrong, or it's a signal of things to come later on in the game. Perhaps. <laughs> depends on how good of friends you are uh, in that group, I guess. <laughs> uh, and we'll have uh, a link to that story in the show notes. Glenn, what do you have here? Well, the other one is um, how, if you're like me, you notice that there is a severe shortage of, you know, truly magnificent beards in RPGs. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking the, the, the funky, sculpted, you know, manscaping, you know, hipster beards. I'm talking big, gigantic beards that you can braid and light on fire and terrorize people with. So it makes me happy that Kenzer, uh, Kenzer Co. or Kenzer is coming out with the Blood Clans of Jorik, which is a basically a new Norse RPG setting. It is primarily, it's made primarily for the Kingdom of Calamar and for the Hackmaster setting. I know a lot of people don't care for Hackmaster to some degree because it's very reminiscent of old school RPG, which as much as I like my old first edition D&D, I like what they've done to modernize things and to, and to streamline play. But they make uh, they make it broad enough where you can easily adapt this to other settings, which is something I've done for decades already. I, I am a, I don't know if thief is the right word, but I love just gobbling up everything I could and just taking every little bit and piece that I like and using it. You know, it didn't matter, oh, well, I don't care if there's stats for these creatures. I'll just make my own stats for them. Or, you know, I'll just grab things from anywhere. And not sometimes not even RPG stuff, but just I like getting stuff from everywhere. And sure. there has not been, for, for, for the amount of, of mythology there is as far as North mythology goes, and just the history, the actual, like, this actually happened stuff, there's really not a lot in RPGs that really, you know, do a good job on that. And I'm really interested to see how good of a job Kenzer does. Now, normally, I think they do a pretty good job with their fluff, which is what I call setting. You know, it's fluff. It's all that, that extra stuff that's not rules. And I think Kenzer generally does a pretty good job on that. So I'm really curious to see what they do with this. 
And I mean, the artwork looks from what I've seen on the website and from some sample pictures, the artwork looks beautiful. And some of it's not the traditional artwork you would expect in an RPG where it's that, you know, pseudo realistic type art. There's some really cool looking artwork that it just really pops and I think really fits the setting really well. Huh. Nice. Of course, and I'm realizing how, with it being a Norse setting, I should have done all of this in a Scottish accent because if Hollywood taught me anything, all Vikings are Scottish apparently. <laughs> but I didn't. Yeah, never, never quite wrapped my head around that. <laughs> Although, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how I could really watch a movie with with a you know a, a Swedish Norwegian you know kind of accent. It would might be a little bit more jarring than hearing Scottish. Yeah. Yeah, which is why it should just be done in Old Norse with no subtitles. <laughs> what was uh, what was the uh, there was a sci-fi movie where they did was that Outlander? Yeah. Ah, uh, I, I know we're kind of jumping topics here, but uh, it, it's still related because they um, the uh, the quote unquote alien. Uh, well, he was an alien. Uh, uh, they they spoke Old Norse, and it's sort of heavily implied that 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 race had an outpost on, on earth and, and their people may have actually populated a portion of that and their language is what, uh, and their people had yes. seemed to have bred in there. And, uh, the, the, the trope for getting him to not speak that language and for us as the viewer to, to understand him without subtitles is, is beautiful because there is yeah. a definite high cost for his ability to do that, which... Uh, and he, interestingly enough, there's also the series, TV series that I know called Outlander, which is completely different. Yeah, completely about, different. But it also operates under the same thing, because that one's about the, the World War II British nurse who goes back to the early days of, like, Scotland and England, like the I don't oh, know, it's yeah. like 1500s or whatever. And... When the Scotsmen talk in the in the old Scotch Gaelic, they don't subtitle any of it because it's it's done the same way. Where it's the you're it puts you kind of in that character's shoes where you're trying to pick up what what they're saying. And I lo I love stuff like that where I don't want everything spelled out to me. I like to be able to immerse myself in the role of the of the of the lead character. And if it's subtitled, it's like well, okay, I suppose some people have to have everything spoon fed to them and they need to know everything that's said, but. For the, from the role of the character, he doesn't know what they're saying, so why should I know what they're saying? Yeah, no, exactly. Screaming this gibberish at me while wielding their axes and wearing <laughs> horns, wearing helmets that did not have horns on them. What? Which is the one thing I've liked so far from what I've seen from the stuff from Kenzer is that I've seen actually authentic-looking helmets. Now, I mean, obviously this is a RPG setting, so they can change things, but... It's always been one of my pet peeves as someone of Norse descent. <laughs> no horns on the helmets. Exactly. It's a, it's a big giant thing to catch people's weapons and basically break your neck. I Yeah, that just... Just like, uh, you know, uh, female's armor, typically, uh, as it is portrayed in, in uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and other games. Really not uh, not helpful at all in any... Oh, yeah, the, the plate of the, here, catch yeah. your sword right <laughs> right into my into my heart. Just yes. funnel all the weapons right into I'll, there. I'll, I'll focus that, the, the tip of your blade right where it needs to go. Thank you. <laughs> uh, how long has uh, Kensner been around? Oh, gosh. I, that name really kind of sits in the back of my head. Like, it's been around for a while. Yeah. Uh, boy. 
I do not know. Um, God, it's got to be oh, well over 20 years. Okay. Okay. Because, I mean, I... Man, I had some of their board games way back in the day when they, they released like them with some of the people with their Mall of America and Orcs of the Gate. And, I mean, just Knights of the Deer Table has been around a long, long time, too. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, okay. I think 94 is when they released Kingdoms of Calamar. Wow. Or for, for, for D&D. Okay. So I don't know if that's – they've been around at least that long. Sure. Wow. So, so a very dependable, long-standing company that uh, obviously doesn't put out crap. Otherwise, they would no longer be in business. So well worth, yes. uh, well worth checking out. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Glenn. Let's go over something that, uh, that we really wanted to share with folks. As I spoke about earlier, when and we're going to get more into the details on this with, with Glenn, but Glenn did some, some crowdfunding to get the Mistrunner game published and and printed so we wanted to have a portion of this and and just kind of spotlight something that we thought people should be really hip to on kickstarter something that they might want to back or check out and uh so many games that i'm trying to think of some there was a game that i really wanted to get in on and i just didn't have money at the time and it was a I want to say it was a Sherlock Holmes game or something like that, something hmm. in that vein, uh, and so many other things. So we wanted to talk about uh, a game, spotlight it, and uh, this time out I'm going to have Glenn talk about a game that, uh, that he found that he thinks folks should really check out. So take it away. All right. Uh, if you are a bit older like I am, and I'm not, I'm not like ancient, but, you know, I'm in my 40s, and uh, <laughs> there was a show uh, which actually – Actually, predates me. I caught everything. I caught was on reruns. Thunderbirds. It was. Uh, I loved it as a kid, and I mean, it. I can see a lot of people today, younger people today, watching, going, "Really, marionettes?" Because I mean, it's what it is. It's it's sci-fi marionettes is pretty much what it is in models. It's it's set in twenty sixty-five, and it follows the exploits of International Rescue, which is like this unaffiliated group that just goes around and you know of, of do-gooders that goes around and, and does things. So they're doing a board game on this, and it's a co-op game where you basically take on the role of international rescue, going around the globe, you know, preventing evil from rearing its ugly head fully. And what really struck me with this one is that the lead designer on this is Matt Laycock. Those who don't follow games, you know, or have tons of games, you know, in a store they work at might not know the name. He is the guy who brought us Pandemic. And Forbidden, ah, Island, Forbidden Desert. He's kind of sure. you know he's one of one of the one of the granddaddies of the co-op board games. So seeing him attach to this and that, along with the fact that I just I've loved the I've loved Thunderbird since I was a kid. And, and I'm gonna hang on for just a second, just to oh, yeah, make yeah. sure people are on the same page. If you have seen the movie uh, Team America, yes, were put out by uh, uh, Parker uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Uh, it's that same exact look, except less of the puppet sex. But yes. that's that's exactly what what this show was for for it was targeted for kids. And good lord, there was at least there was Thunderbirds, and there was at least one other show, if not a couple more. Oh yeah, there was. I mean, you had you had the original Thunderbirds. Uh, you had was it Thunderbirds Argo? 
or is that this? I don't remember if it's the same show or not, but I mean, there was there was a lot of stuff. And just, I mean, it ran, it didn't even run a long time. The original series, I think, only ran like two years. Okay, yeah. But, you know, I mean, it, back when I was growing up, you know, it's with the exception of like, with the, about the exception of Star Wars, and that's about it. <laughs> you didn't have, I mean, effects were not a huge thing. And I also grew up, I grew up watching the Godzilla movies and all that stuff where I'm used to all the model work. Sure, yep. And part of it was part of it was the stories, but a big part of it was just the I wanted all the cool stuff they had. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, I just, I wanted everything. I wanted I, you know, and I wanted uh, why can't I get these as toys? Why can't I get them as toys? <laughs> and I'm sure they made some, but of course, by the time I was born, this was in '65. I came around six years later. You know that stuff wasn't in the stores anymore, and there was no eBay to go buy stuff. There was our eBay was called a rummage sale. Sure, <laughs> yep. and the odds of you scoring something there were pretty slim. <laughs> and if you were, it would be like a guy missing an arm or something. That you know. Now, uh, the thing to, that I noticed here is that it is it is British, or at least yes. it is all of the the dollar amounts that you're looking for. Their goal was uh, twenty thousand pounds. They're at one hundred and sixty six thousand two hundred and seventy three pounds at this moment in time, and over 2,500 backers for this. So people really, really wanted this game and it struck a chord with them. Yeah, I, I think it did. And I think, now I don't see this being a massively popular selling game. I mean, unless unless it comes out and, and the mechanics just blow people away, this is definitely a niche game. Yeah. It, it, it's, 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 it's appealing to people, one, who like co-ops, which is already a smaller portion of the gaming public in general. And two, a much, much smaller slice is people who know what Thunderbirds was and <laughs> yeah. care enough about it to want a game themed on it, sure. um, which would be me. I mean, when I, I told this to my to my boss, the guy who owns my store, she was kind of like, kind of nodded his head and be like, okay. <laughs> so it's not for everyone. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be for everyone. I have faith in the fact that I know that it's at least going to be a decent playing game based on who's making it. Yeah, no, absolutely. That kind of pedigree, uh, you know you're not going to get a garbage game. The other thing I, I saw that was interesting, too, is that if you pledge only, if you pledge 10 pounds or more, you get the Thunderbird models. Uh, and it says, do you just want the plastic models from the board game? Not the expansions. This is for you. <laughs> so, I mean, if you were a fan and maybe you don't necessarily want the game, at least you can get the the ship pieces yes. uh, to to put in your in your collection and looking at the size and we'll have a, a link to this in the show notes as well looking at the size of the main uh, in my head the main Thunderbird ship and I don't recall the name of it I've only seen maybe an episode or two maybe a long time ago but I mean you know it's a good it looks like a good two three inches long. If I were to hazard a guess based on like dice size in, in comparison. So I mean these are these are some pretty decent looking models from what from what I can see here. So um, Yeah, they, they look pretty cool. And as far as the names of the ships, most of them were just simply called Thunderbird One, Thunderbird Two, <laughs> Thunderbird Three. That's pretty much what, what they were generally called. And it was basically each one was for a different thing. I think Thunderbird Four, I think, was underwater. I think three was like a rocket ship, if I remember right. Okay. Yep. It's it's, it's been a long time since I've seen them, and I, I and this also makes me want to go back and revisit these, which is normally a good thing. 
Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you go. I, I I remember this show when I was a kid, and you want to go back and you rewatch. You're like, that was awful. I was a dumb child. <laughs> well, there are certain things that you know. You have a, a simpler worldview. There are some things yes. that just really, really appeal to you. And as you get older, and uh, you realize the world's a little bit more complex, character motivations that were cool when you were eight <laughs> are all of a sudden very flimsy and very uninteresting. They've already, uh, looking at their stretch goals, they've achieved two of them, and they're at close to a breakpoint on their third, yep. which the evil organization was the Hood, correct? Yes. Now, the first one that they've achieved here is Play the Hood. So you get extra models of the Hood, his secret temple base, and more. Um, the second one that was unlocked at 155,000 pounds Thunderbirds role-playing, and this was an add-on, use the base set for an exciting role-playing experience. Now, the third one that they're about, and they're really close, and they've got 14 more days to go on this, so I have a feeling yeah. that they're going to hit this one. Play the Hood is their third one. The extra cards, rules, and components to add a fifth player to the game as the Hood. So you could have a player that's actually working against everybody on the board. Now, as I recall with Pandemic... That is not an option. You are all kind of working together to in the in the base game. It's not. Oh, if you, get, if you get on the brink, that adds the option of a bioterrorist who gets oh. to play against everyone. But you have to have the expansion. Okay, so this really kind of falls in line with that that's that setup there for pandemic. Yes. Okay, very cool. And their top donation level here, oh, which is all gone. Ah. Oh. What's the top one that they have left here? 65 pounds or more. You get all the game uh, and you get the game and the, all the expansions. The Thunderbird board game plus all the unlocked base game upgrades and expansions includes name in the credits. Check shipping section for estimated costs because uh, you know international shipping is going to, to vary. Uh, if parts of your pledge are available, you may collect at Gen Con, Essence Spiel, Dragon Meat, or... Modifius London office base game will be ready in August expansions will ship before Christmas. So this is going to be out at least at their, their projected point uh, before Christmas time. So this could be a gift for somebody theoretically in time. Yes, for Christmas. They, the game is, is pretty much done. Okay. Uh, so the, the money that they're raising is, is for print costs. Okay. Nice. And, and, and like this is this is the type of thing that I think this is the type of thing that I know some people complain whenever companies use Kickstarter, but I think this is the, exactly the type of thing that Kickstarter is for, is the for a company to take a shot and just say, hey, let's make a Thunderbirds board game. That could very easily be a great idea or it could tank. Yeah. And yep. as Kickstarter is showing, this turned out to be a good idea. <laughs> so, and, you know, it's... And the thing is, is that the 2,500 people who backed it, you know, it's, I'd be surprised if they print more than 5,000 copies of this game. Okay. Okay. I mean, unless, unless this number shoots up a lot, I don't see them going super heavy in this. Modifius is not a giant company. They'd have a fairly well stocked library of games they make, but they're not, you know, they're not some giant conglomerate that just go, yeah, we'll just throw a million dollars at this and be fine. Sure. Okay. All right. Uh, again, we'll have a link to the uh, the Kickstarter in the show notes for you guys to check out. But yeah, if you 
if you even remember what Thunderbirds is, or if you've seen <laughs> Team America and want to know what that was really based on, this game would definitely give you a good feel for for what that's all about. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Glenn. Next, we're we're gonna and, and we've sort of touched on this a little bit, but now I uh, really want to talk to you about things like this that we've just spoken about with with Kickstarter. Coming up with a concept for a game. I mean, uh, of course, with Thunderbirds that already existed, but Mist Runner is something that came from your brain and you decided to world build, make a whole living, breathing RPG. And and I know some of the, the story about, about the, the background of the journey that you took essentially <laughs> to to get the game out to the to the public. And this is available for, for purchase mm-hmm. still what I wanted to do is just really talk to you about what is the process? What is the, what did you go through to, to make this happen? Oh, well, I mean, as far as the birth of this, I mean, you have to go back to 1989. Okay. Is, is the first ever incarnation in any way whatsoever of Mist Runner, which that world has almost zero resemblance <laughs> to, to what is, what is currently there. Okay. It was something I started doing with some friends that was mostly diceless. When we would just be screwing around, and I would throw this out, and we did this stuff. And then about two years later, after I graduated high school and I went to college, I actually sat down one day. I went down to the computer lab and just banged this thing out on good old WordPerfect. <laughs> there you go. And I banged out like 90 pages of setting and about 15 pages of, of very basic rules. And I kept the rules very basic. and even. As, as I progressed, I tried to keep the rules as small of a section of the overall thing as possible because I don't like getting bogged down. When I'm role-playing, I want the very basic rules. Yeah. As I said, I'm, I'm very much a, a free-form game master when it comes to running games, and I can make things up on the fly. And a lot of things, when I, when I run my game, a lot of things, if it's very simple stuff, I don't, I don't have people waste roles of the, you know, like when someone's searching for a secret door, if there's one there and they have the skill and there's like, not like a goblin trying to stab them in the face. <laughs> okay. Unless it's like super difficult to find, they're going to find it. I'm not going to sit there and, you know, have them go every 10 feet of a wall, roll a D six. Oh, nope. 10 feet more, roll a D six, 10 feet. Cause I've had players who will do that too. And it's like, uh, oh, uh, you found nothing. All right. Now it's the cleric's turn. Roll a D six. No. I wanted to eliminate a lot of the excess dice rolling if possible. But for me, a lot of it was, it was just, it was the setting. And this is an amalgam of all the things I've read over my, over my life. And a lot, a lot of it came from mythology. I grew up reading a lot of stuff. My dad was a bookbinder and he worked at a place that printed books. And I got, that's how I got the D and D was because his company printed all the hardcover D and D books. Nice. Uh, they also printed all the Time Life books. So uh, when I was a kid, I had the entire Enchanted World series. And oh, I read cool. those things cover to cover, uh, up and down, left and right, all over the place. So a lot of the mythology, I, I, I glommed onto that right away. I mean, I, I've, been, I've been reading fantasy since I, I don't even know how long, since I can remember. I mean, I, I, read, I read Lord of the Rings as extra credit for my confirmation class. <laughs> so How did, okay. Nope, I'm not even going to ask. Nope. The, this, despite what Tolkien says, there is there's a lot of Christian symbolism in Lord of the Rings. Despite him arguing that there's not, and that h- nothing in his real life, you know, found its way to Lord of the Rings, even though 
so much of it is based on his experiences in World War One. But no, 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 no. He's above influence from the outside world. Apparently, a lot of it just grew off all that stuff that that I that I I had read, and then just games, all the games I had played because I played so many different role playing games when I was a kid. And as I said before, I just scavenged material from everywhere. If I found one little cool thing in a book or in an RPG game, you know, for Torg, I mined the hell out of Torg when that game was out back in the 90s. And it just kind of started growing and growing and growing. And I never, for a long time, I never thought of publishing it because, one, you don't all of a sudden decide, hey, I'm going to make games for a living and become rich. <laughs> what? It doesn't work that way? Because there's a lot of people there's a lot of people who don't. You know, there's a very small number of people who, you know, who make games and make a, that's their primary source of income is making games. Sure. And probably a large chunk of those are people who are, you know, artists for games because they can do the art thing and I can draw things that you can say it looks humanoid-ish. <laughs> I make pretty um, stick pig figures. So Yeah. So but then, you know, when print on demand started becoming a thing. I'm like, I want to copy this for me. Sure. I want to just, this is a game I've been playing off and on for, you know, 20, almost 20 years at the, at the time. I'm like, I just want a copy to put on my shelf and to be like, that's my game. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I could at least see, I know I have friends that would, would want a copy because I have friends who have played it. And then I started looking into, okay, so then if I'm actually going to publish it, publish it, well, now I need artwork. Yeah. Because that's a big thing. And I didn't want to go the route. I'm not trying to badmouth a lot of people who have their independent RPGs. There's a lot of bad artwork in the fantasy world. There really is. Yeah. yeah. And part of it, when you're when you're independent, you can only afford so much. Yeah. Yep. I'm lucky enough that I have a couple of friends who are good artists. Yes. <laughs> who some some of which don't basically gave art for free. A few others I paid them because sure. you should you should pay people for their work. I mean, I didn't pay them a lot because I didn't have a lot, yeah. but I paid them. I paid them, you know, a, a a pittance for their work. So it's not just the, don't ever say you'll get a great exposure. Oh, it's, that'll get you punched in the face, or it'll get you some other kind of exposure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, um, and it just kind of it just kind of started growing and growing and growing. And then I heard about Kickstarter, and I'm like, this is how I can do it. Yeah, and it worked. Very cool. In the process of, and you know, in, in twenty years, obviously you had people yes. play the game. You said that you ended up changing the world, as it were, through the course of of play, and I'm assuming feedback. Mm-hmm. How and with you, and I mentioned earlier, you're working on a card game called Apocalypse How, and you're you're play testing that now. And I I got a chance to to, to play that, and it was a very fun game. What is your process for for playtesting? Do you you know have have do you run a game? Have people play it? And do you write down your notes? Do you just you know in like a physical form? Do you just keep them in your head? Or how how do you how do you document the 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 changes that people request or suggest to a game that you've that you're working on? Um, a lot of it's I take notes during play. Okay, it's and it's vastly different between an RPG and and a card game. Sure. A big reason why is just simply the amount of time. And there's a lot more mechanics that go into an RPG and things that people can do different in an RPG than they can. You know, the card game has specific rules. But I take my own notes. I always try to. Sometimes I get so caught up in everything I forget. Yeah. And 
when I was really prepared, I would actually have little forms for people to fill out, which almost no one ever does. <laughs> and I would ask people afterwards sometimes for feedback. And the thing is, is if, if you're ever thinking of making your own game, you will have people who will agree to play test it. Most of them, the most feedback you get was, oh, I liked it, <laughs> which isn't really feedback. That's very uh, helpful. Very. You know, or, you know, and you won't get a lot out of most people. The big thing is, is how I do it is I start off with some of the rule stuff and then I play it, try to play it myself. Okay. So what I did with Mr. Is, is I tried making characters. I tried doing simple combats myself, which is something I do whenever I'm thinking of buying a new RPG is I make a character and I test out how mechanics work. I do the same thing with my play testing is I see, okay, does this work? Once I get past that point, I then go to my friends because my friends are as big a nerds as I am and they love games. <laughs> and then I play test with them. But you can only do that so much because your friends, they're your friends. And it's hard for a friend, even when, when, when you're asking them, no, tell me what's wrong with it. And they're like, oh, well, I don't like the fact that this guy has seven toes. It's like, okay, that out of everything I wrote down, <laughs> 300 pages, this is the one thing you, you tell me? Is that? So your friends don't, you know, they don't want to, they don't, generally, they don't want to come down to you. You'll get some rare ones. I, I know a guy who, who will give you very honest feedback with your, your card and board games. And he's also a game designer too. And he, he will he will tell you what is bad, what is good, what works and what doesn't. And you want that, but that's gonna be one of every yeah. probably fifty or less people or, or more, I should say, that you play test with. Okay. And the final thing is is once once you're past friends, then you go out to the general public. And this is where game conventions are your friends. Especially if you have if anything smaller, they will let you play run games there. Sure. And now there's these things popping up called protospiels, which are primarily board and card games, but it's little groups where it's, it's game designers. Where they get together sometimes monthly, sometimes yearly, and people play test their games with other game designers. And it's great. Hmm. Nice. Okay. Now, uh, once you had achieved backing, and mm -hmm. once you had actually printed Mistrunner, how did you... Because I'm assuming you didn't hire a firm to to distribute your game. How did you structure getting that game out to people? I did not do a lot with it because part of it is when I when I did my Kickstarter, Kickstarter was still in its fairly younger days. Okay. And I raised basically enough to cover the cost of the artwork I paid out for like the cover, full color cover, and the basic printing costs. Okay. I did not get enough to cover shipping costs to everybody. Oof. So a lot of that came out of pocket. And then just the fact that and then the other extra copies I wanted to be able to sell myself. I mean, I sell them in at the store I work at, we sell them. Actually, it sells we're we're not an RPG heavy store, but it sells fairly well there. I mean, probably nice. sell about twenty five or so copies there in the last three years. Okay. Which is pretty darn good for a game that no one's heard of. Yeah. Um, or that few people have heard of. A lot of it is just simply, I have it on, it was originally on Lulu, yep. and it's not on there anymore for reasons that I can't understand because I try to print stuff and they tell me, oh, there's an error with your printing. We'll we'll contact you with what the error is in two to three business days. And they don't reply. And then I send them emails and they don't reply to those. So I gave up uh, on it. And I moved to a smarter choice, which is drive-through RPG. 
Ah, yes. I already did the, the PDF sales through them. Okay. And now I do the book through them as well. And one thing I've done to spread word on it is there is a charity event uh, for the Wayne Foundation, like worldwide child slavery and stuff like that. It's it's okay. exploitation of you know traffic, sex trafficking, and bad child labor all over the world. That's what it is. A guy I know who who does this thing where he gets a bunch of people, uh, independent designers, who throw all their stuff together on Drive Through RPG, and you buy this bundle. You you pay like twenty or thirty oh, bucks okay. for this like two hundred dollar bundle of games. Sure. And I threw mine in there a couple times. Which just gets it out to people. And I mean, most of those people probably never even look at it because they get, you know, I'm getting 40 new PDFs of games. I'm going to look at maybe four of them. Yeah. But I did that. And then just, I did, I have not done, looking back, there's a lot more I could have done because I didn't know how to market this stuff. I really didn't. This was, I was still fairly new in, 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 in the game store. You know, I, I, I worked a game store, but I didn't know a lot of the, the intricacies of the game industry. Awesome. I know now. Looking back, if if knowing what I know now, there's other avenues I would take as well, and I, I could explore. It's still hard for for an RPG. It's very hard getting that getting someone to distribute your RPG. That's not going to happen unless you are unless you unless you've really done something really really cool and unique. Which, as much as I love my game, it's not like it's not like the you know the rebirth of you know it's like oh my god this is the next D and D no <laughs> uh, unless you've got that or unless you've already got some names people recognize you know if you got like a Monty Cook well Monty Cook can you know his name alone will drive stuff you know sure. and or if you have a license behind it you know if you come up with something Cthulhu well people are just automatically going to go well it's Cthulhu I'll try it yeah yep so it's hard to get that distribution with an RPG. So I've mostly just done sales on my own. I've, I've sold to a couple other stores over the years where I've given them a couple of copies, and most of them I never hear from again. Ah, uh, okay. And it's just that's kind of how it is. It's like some stores, they, they'll pick up a copy or two of something, and, you know, it, it may sell right away, and they just don't think about it again, or it may sit on their shelf. You know, some of these stores may still have the two copies I sent them still sitting there. <laughs> yeah, okay. Which, you know, I've been to game stores, and that's that's how it is at times. You know, you have a game that the people in the store have never played, so they don't know how to run it, and they don't know how to sell it then because people say, what's this game about? They're like, oh, yeah. it's an independently published game, and that's the biggest explanation you get on it. Yeah. So I think my game is sold well enough at my store because I'm there to talk about it. Sure. Up until recently, uh, one of the main artists worked at the store with me so he could talk about it. Okay. And, you know, and... and a fair number of the staff have actually played or had some experience with it or exposure to it where they can talk enough about it. And that's the hard thing is that you really, it's hard to stand out in the RPG world these days. It really is. Yeah. Because there's, aside from all the games that have already come out, which there were a lot back in the, in the heyday, there were so many role-playing games. And now with print and demand, anyone can release a game. Sure. And almost everyone has. <laughs> yeah, and there are some gems out there. There's a lot of just kind of blah, okay stuff. There's, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat. There's some really awful stuff out there, but there's some really good stuff out there too that that people have made that you know that just kind of pop out of nowhere and also boom, there's this cool fun game. So, but mine was mostly it was it was done because I just wanted to publish my game. I never expected like I was going to sell. Oh, I'm going to sell ten thousand. No, I mean I think I I just recently crossed. If I count PDFs. And books, I think I just crossed the 400 mark. Okay. Which I think is pretty good for an independently published RPG. Sure. And that doesn't count all the ones that were in the charity packs, okay. which is the 
that's the the shocker when all of a sudden you just wake up one one day you look at your email and I've got seventy eight notices from the sales. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, seventy! What happened? And I look at it. Oh, it's happened! It's arrived! It's all, it's all oh. for zero dollars, but it's for a good cause. So okay, yeah. but it's that first shock of like, oh my god! <laughs> now I I get the oh my god! Someone bought one. <laughs> and I just did a chat recently on it, and apparently that drove I sold like nine copies in the last month, which I haven't I haven't sold that much in a month since the game first came out. Okay. Okay. And a large part of that is on me, is I don't I don't actively promote it as much as I should. Sure. Okay. Just a, a, a couple more things here real quick. What type of uh, supplements, I mean, have you had the time to make expansions or supplements for Mist Runner? Well, I've had the time. <laughs> I just haven't used it for work. I mean, I've... I've I don't update the website as much as I want to, but yeah. when I do, a lot of times I'll throw little little things up on the website. I might throw an NPC or a location for the setting stuff because the big thing for me it's it's always been about the setting. Yeah, but I have been working on for a little over a year now the big book of perks uh, which I want to release and Mist Runner as a game it's it's all a skill based system. You don't have levels; it's all skills. So I made a book. Of, I'm working on a book of perks that is actually you have special perks you can pick with skills. Because not everyone's going to say, hey, I want the dancing skill. <laughs> yeah. I'm not thinking, well, what am I going to use that for? I mean, there's, there are some people who want to role play more than roll dice and kill things. Sure. who might pick that. But you attach some perks to it. Well, now, okay, so you can dance. You have this perk called the Dance of Blades, which gives you bonuses in melee combat. Oh. Because of the way you can move. Sure. Or you get some special perk if you take, say, the cooking skill which you can cook a meal that will help heal someone faster. Okay. Because you can throw in some little medicinals into your food. So it, it makes some of those less thought-of skills more appealing to people because it's the, one, you can stretch your, your role-play muscle a bit more mm -hmm. because you, you can pick a character that's not simply, I can swing swords and I can throw fireballs. Yep. You've got this, you know, you have a more rounded person where it's, it's even back in history, a warrior was not simply a guy who, you know, just hit things with a sword. A lot of those guys, they knew how to mend their swords. They knew how to sew. Some of them knew how to cook or to mend wounds. And you had people who had, or, or were farmers before they were soldiers. You had people sure. who had other skills than other than just simply hit with club. So, <laughs> yep. so I've been working on that. And then I've been wanting to actually publish some short pre-made adventures. But for me, it's hard because of how much I improvise when I run adventures to actually write it down and and just say okay here's here's how the adventure will play because my mind will go all right so there's a door on the left and the, i know how players will literally go well there's got to be more than just that one door <laughs> and they're not going to go through the door you want them to go through so it's it's hard which is why i like to, to improvise because then it doesn't matter what door you go through you're going to go where i want you to go without me having to railroad you and force you along i'll just change what what where the path leads yeah. And it's hard for me to write that stuff down, but okay. I, I, I've been trying on that. <clears throat> okay. Um, and, and my last question on mistrunner.com, or is there a way if somebody is up here of the game, interested in the game, and, and you mentioned you really don't, you're not that style of GM, is there a place if somebody were to come up with a scenario for a pre-gen game setting for Mistrunner, would you entertain that? Would you have a forum to, to post that on mistrunner.com? 
I had a forum. Okay. I took said forum down <laughs> because it was about a lot of sexual supplements. Oh yeah. And other, it was just it was spammed. Uh, I, I I need to revisit it because I mean I had where I had the captcha and I had you had to be your comments had to be approved by a moderator. It got to a point where this stuff for the most part wasn't showing up anymore, but it was the fact that I would log in and I would have two thousand yeah pending posts yeah. because some bot would you know just hit me all night long and I'd find like I can't because I'm not I don't want to just bulk delete everything because then I'm going to delete that one yeah. comment from someone that's valid you yep. know all this stuff and they're going to get pissed at me because well that asshole just deleted my comment yeah don't pull don't buy his game he's a jerk <laughs> so I want to revisit that I think the best way to do something is you can go we're on Facebook Mr. Runner is on Facebook okay and you can contact me through that and there's the there's a public group and then there's the private group for the, for people who are who have done a bit on the design and the play testing Okay, but I, I'm on Facebook, and you can you can find it on there. And if you really wanted to submit something, by all means, I, I will entertain it. Okay. I, I do have when in the earliest days of Mistrunner, and this would be in like '91, '92, when I was still on dial-up internet. I had a website that actually you could get the the basic rules and some of the setting stuff free. Mm -hmm. And there's a group in Germany that has been playing the game. They don't play as regularly as they used to. Since 1993, <laughs> uh, as of as of two years ago, I haven't I lost contact with the guy two years ago. His name is Greg or Gregor, but Greg. I lost contact with him two years ago. They had gone from playing; they played at least once a month for like five straight years, and then people started doing their own ways after college. Yeah. But he said they still get together like once or twice a year, and they 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 bust it out and they play it. Nice. So it's it's that kind of cool thing where it's the and I mean. This is someone who never even bought the game. You know, this sure. is someone who got it free. I don't know if he ever got a copy. I, I, well, I, I shouldn't say, I don't know if he's ever played the current version. I sent him a PDF. When I finally published it, I sent him a PDF for free just because of the fact that he'd been a player for so long. And he'd given me some feedback over the years sure. on some things that worked and didn't. Okay. So that is really cool. We've been, we've been saying the name. I just want to make sure it's spelled out properly. It's M-I-S-T. R U N N E R Mist Runner. Yep, and one word. One word, mistrunner.com, and you can check out Glenn's website. You can check out there's links to other things that, that Glenn does there too, and also ways to, to get the game, which is yes. is exceptional. Cool. Wanted to uh, let people know about where they can find us at galacticnetcasts.com. That is the home for the Adventure Party. We have a special section on there called Hello, My Name Is. And basically, it's a way for, it's a way for you to talk about your favorite character. And what we want to do is we would like to highlight your character, and it doesn't matter if it's you know a character you created in World of Warcraft, if it's Mist Runner, if it's Pathfinder, if it's D and D, if it's Shadowrun, we don't care what the setting for the character is. But sometimes you engage in a conversation with somebody and they want to tell you all about their character, but they don't have time to really listen. What we wanted to do is give you guys a format for you to share a little bit about a character that you've enjoyed playing and why that character is so cool. And what we want to do is get a little bit of information from you, and then if we select your character to be read on, on the show, we would send you a 
a certificate that is suitable for framing, <laughs> stating that you were our pick for Hello, My Name Is. So you can go to galacticnetcasts.com and click to the Adventure Party page. And there is a special link there for Hello, My Name Is that you'll be able to find when you get to the Adventure Party uh, section of the website. I wanted to uh, to thank you, Glenn, for talking to us and also welcoming you to the show. I'm, I'm really looking thank forward you. to doing this with you. I've always enjoyed talking to you and having this format to talk about something that we both enjoy very much, which is gaming in all its different shapes or forms. This is going to be going to be awesome and uh, a lot of great insight into oftentimes people want to take that journey to to make a thing. And it doesn't matter what that thing is, but in this particular case, this is a game, and, and I think that you gave a lot of great information uh, on, on taking that journey to, to put that thing on your bucket list, to manufacture yes. a game and, and get it out there. Because, you know, everybody's got an idea, and, and it's really cool to, to manifest that thing and have it in your hand and be able to share it with other people <clears throat> so that they can be a part of it too. So thank you so much for sharing that information. Yeah, and to those of you who are, if you're worried about failure, one of the greatest tips of advice I got that I've seen memes on, on the internet too is the, you might fail at something you try to do, but you will always fail at the thing you didn't try. Absolutely. So no. give it a shot. Failure is just a highlight of something that you need to change or do differently. It's not, yes. it should never be viewed as a negative thing. And it's hard. It's hard to get over that. But taking, taking that step back, regrouping and looking at the things that, that might not work and modifying them, throwing them out maybe, or getting feedback like you do in playtesting to uh, find a new direction uh, in which way to go and, 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 and make that thing that you, that you want to do. If you got that idea, you should go out there and definitely try to make that happen. And, you know, a lot of times money's a big hang up. I mean, you know, trying to get a thing made, it takes money. I can't lie about that. And having Kickstarter and there's Indiegogo and there's other other ways for you to, to try to acquire that funding. Gosh, you can really make that happen. So I uh, really encourage you to, 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 to make that dream happen for you. You can find Adventure Party on galacticnetcasts.com. Like I said before, if you go to galacticnetcasts.com, you can see a link to all our different social media outlets. We have a YouTube channel. We have a, a Facebook group page. We've got a Google Plus page that uh, has a lot of activity on it, which is really, really fairly interesting. And uh, I, the YouTube channel, like I mentioned before, is where you're going to be able to find the video version of Adventure Party. Uh, and you can see our epic beards that uh, Glenn and I both have. Well, yours is more trimmed to a, a nice Van Dyke, as it were, from yes. what I can. I haven't enlarged, embiggened your picture enough to see which style you're wearing at this point in time. But no, no dwarven beard by any imagination, but uh, definitely some facial hair to be seen in the video version. If you're using uh, iTunes and Stitcher to uh, to hear this, please take a moment to give us some feedback. Like we said uh, about failure, you don't really fail, but you, if you get the right feedback or get uh, good feedback, you can make adjustments and do a thing better. So if, you, uh, if you're hearing us on iTunes or Stitcher, please take a moment and give us a review. Let us know what you liked, what you thought could have been better, and uh, help us try to make, a, make the adventure party a little bit better for for everybody. You can also leave feedback for us by emailing galacticnetcasts at gmail.com. That's galacticnetcasts at gmail.com. Or we actually have a number that you can call or text. And, you know, texting rates may apply to that. 
805-328-3966. That's 805-328-3966. And you can leave a message or you can text. And something that was just added by the founder and creator of Galactic Netcasts is uh, on the website, uh, he found a plugin where you can actually, if you have a microphone attached to your computer, you can actually leave a message through the website, which is really kind of cool. We had a, a listener from one of the other Galactic Netcast shows. <laughs> he left a kind of a pep talk message uh, Daryl Johnston from uh, from the UK, who's a, a longtime listener to uh, the Alien Invasion and the Sci-Fi Geeks Club. And uh, thank you very much for that message, Daryl. I greatly appreciated that. And thank you so much, everybody, for joining us at the Adventure Party. And we hope that your characters live long and healthy lives and that your adventures may always be epic. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. You have been listening to a presentation of GalacticNetcasts.com. For more about the show you just listened to, including how to subscribe, give us feedback, links to our social feeds, and more, please visit www.GalacticNetcasts.com.